we have the Writers Guild on strike in Hollywood. We now have the actors joining them. SAG After is on strike. UPS was about to be on strike, which would have been the largest um, private sector strike in recent history. That's my colleague Tammy Kim, who writes about labor and the workplace for The New Yorker. So over the past year, there's been a lot of anticipation of what people in the labor movement affectionately refer to as hot labor summer. And that is <laughs> what we are in right now. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. I asked Tammy why it seems like contract negotiations are falling apart across the country. So like on the UPS end, a lot of workers talk about how during the pandemic, they didn't get hazard pay, they didn't get bonuses, and they sort of see this contract as a way to make up mm -hmm. for what they weren't given straight away. And so, you know, following in that, you know, when we see United Auto Workers coming up on their contracts, it's that same feeling of, well, we weren't given that during the hardest period of our manufacturing work, of our delivery work. And the way that we want to effectuate that now is through this contract process. Um, certainly inflation and the increases in the consumer price index are part of this. You know, people can feel that the wages they had essentially negotiated for are now massively reduced just by virtue of economic trends. Yeah. So I think that's part of it as well. So you mentioned UPS. You also mentioned the United Auto Workers. What are the big stories in, in labor right now? Like, what are the sort of the big places that we should be focusing on? These are these are very big stories. I would say from a kind of economic structural perspective, the UPS and the United Auto Workers strike really are the big two. Um, that's for a number of reasons. So first of all, I think looking at the structure of those organizations, obviously the Teamsters and United Auto Workers have very mixed histories in terms of governance. The United Auto Workers is coming out of a period where a bunch of its top leadership were federally indicted for embezzlement. And a reform movement within that union has now led them to a point where they are feeling ready to take on a strike. If they do go on strike, it would be 150,000 workers in what remains of the auto industry. Um, that's a very important industry, even though it's obviously a fraction of what it used to be because it's both related to power structures um, in the Democratic Party yeah. um, and in our perception of, you know, American manufacturing and a future of electronic vehicle manufacturing and part of this like Green New Deal package that Biden is trying to push. So I think that's really essential. The Teamsters and UPS, just by virtue of the size, 350,000, the fact that all of us are dependent on this mail order economy and the Teamsters ambitions to organize Amazon, which is their growing priority. So it sounds like UPS isn't going to strike anymore. They were able to reach an agreement in bargaining. How do they avoid that? It definitely came faster than most people predicted. I think the speed of it was perhaps due to the fact that there was so much public pressure and a surprising amount of support, actually, um, among the public for UPS drivers, which I think the company didn't expect. Um, maybe UPS thought that people wouldn't turn out, that they would think, well, you know, we need our goods more than these people need their their wages. And also the top earners at UPS, the drivers who have been there a very long time, can make very, very good wages. We're talking about drivers earning about $41 an hour. And so I think UPS thought maybe there wouldn't be sympathy for that population, but it turns out yeah. there was. Also, they had negotiated a number of things that they weren't confident they would win. Um, and then towards the end, uh, the last few economic issues, I guess UPS uh, decided it would fold on rather than risk the losses to the corporation. Well, good for UPS. Guess so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm interested in the, you know, the, the public support element. I've always wondered how important public support actually is, because, I mean, I think, you know, looking at the striking that's happening in Hollywood right now, it seems like that's something where people are overwhelmingly, you know, in support of the writers and the actors who are now striking. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's been, I mean, it definitely hasn't moved at the speed of the, um, you know, the Teamsters negotiations. So I guess does public support matter more for certain companies or for certain industries? Yeah, I think on the on the UPS side, you know, it's affected by PR. And I think the there was this perception that because it's in this logistics supply chain, that so much would be tangled up. Um, I mean, UPS handles one in four packages in the United States. So thinking about what it would have meant for them to be on strike for a prolonged period is pretty devastating. And I think that was on UPS's mind. Um, I think also there's, uh, even though we're all very, very reliant on mail ordering and uh, perhaps a little bit impatient, you know, for breakdowns in the supply chain, as we saw over the pandemic, UPS workers had staged through the Teamsters a series of practice pickets that were sort of testing public response. And the response was very, very good. Um, as you said, I mean, I think in Hollywood as well, that is certainly there. But I think the studios, maybe because they aren't as much of a day-to-day business, they have a lot of maybe backlogged projects that they can bring out. They're trying to, you know, find ways to work around the contract. They feel like they have a kind of lead time that in logistics you just don't have. I see. So it's there's less of an immediate pressure to give in for the studios. I think I mean, that's right. I've definitely read that with Netflix. That since a lot of um, their series are, you know, coming from other countries, basically, they just have like all of these international shows that they can kind of spit out and they don't actually, it's okay if, you know, the American shows are, you know, not coming out at all. Right. Yeah, that's been an interesting thing to watch and certainly a challenge to understandings of global uh, labor solidarity, as it were. And you would also wonder about the other, like, it, it doesn't seem as though every streaming service is in that same kind of comfortable position. And so I guess I'm wondering, you know, when it's when it comes to something like the Hollywood strike, where you're bargaining with multiple streaming companies or cable networks, I mean, what happens when you have someone like Netflix who won't give in, but say Apple is ready to? I mean, not to suggest that Apple is ready to because it doesn't necessarily seem like that's the case. But right. how do you deal with conflicts within the group, basically? Yeah. Yeah. The Hollywood case is, is a really interesting one in the United States because in the United States, primarily under our labor laws, you bargain with one employer at a time and the Hollywood situation with the studios and now with them being allied with these tech companies, some of whom sort of feel like media companies, others of whom really are not primarily media companies like Apple, as you mentioned, it's very, very complicated. And I think that's another factor that, you know, in comparing something like UPS to the studio system is just in a way it's just apples and oranges. Um, by by all reports that we hear from writers guild people, as you noted, I think Netflix does appear to be the holdout and that the traditional studios and perhaps a couple of the other tech companies are actually more flexible. And so um, it's I guess it's impossible to know outside of like the rumors and reports that we're getting from the negotiating committee. But, yeah, I think that's that's a real challenge. And I think to me, that tech studio split is going to be increasingly a thing that in Hollywood they're going to have to deal with and try to figure out how to negotiate around. Will that eventually lead to a split between them, I think, is a question. Yeah, you mentioned this idea of apples and oranges, but it does seem like there are some parallels between, you know, the various strikes that are that are happening or that are that are looming in a way. Like I, I was thinking about technology, for example, mm-hmm. um, just how in Hollywood you have writers and actors who are worried about AI just taking their jobs. And then 
you mentioned that we're seeing something similar with automobile workers where, um, you know, automakers are transitioning from combustion engines to electric cars, which are a lot easier to build. And I was reading that um, it takes like 40 percent fewer workers to produce electric cars. So I've been wondering, I I mean, obviously we all agree that like Brad Pitt shouldn't be replaced by AI and that like a Hollywood (laughs) writer shouldn't be replaced by AI. But switching to electric cars is obviously like a good thing for the environment. And so I'm wondering if this makes it harder for automobile workers to negotiate because there isn't this sense among the public the way that there is with Hollywood that this is like a desperate cash grab and that they're doing this at other people's expense necessarily. It seems like one of those like unintended consequences of technology, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really a question that goes back to the days of the steel industry. You know, at every new technological juncture, what happens to these workers that are displaced? And at different points in history, the federal government and the state governments have created, you know, funds like economic transition funds where workers who are displaced will get some sort of job training money. None of these programs are are really ever perfect. I mean, you saw this obviously during the NAFTA era. Um, But I think like in, in this the the situation of the automobile workers, it's very, very tricky because, you know, just a couple of decades ago, we were talking about half a million workers and now we're down to 150,000 and it's yeah. going to continue to um, decrease in number. To me, it's very much analogous right now to the miners situation and how people who are working in the fossil fuel economy are going to have to conceptualize themselves like in an era where we are all facing climate collapse. And that's a very, very tough call, I think, for the unions. I think the union response to that has been to, yes, to talk to workers about job retraining or to, you know, quote unquote, retool them for another sort of skill within the same industry. Workers, though, kind of know that this is a little bit of a canard, you know, and that it's not really going to solve this question of, well, how am I going to make $90,000 a year again to feed my family? Um, So, I guess my answer is there is no easy answer and it is a compromise and it is something that the labor movement also that's existential to them. Are they going to be part of a social justice movement that understands that climate is important for everybody or are they going to retrench and sort of just pursue their older members interests? Yeah, it's both, I think, like a practical question on the money end and the sort of philosophical question about the positioning of the labor movement. Do you get the sense, too, that people might just like start looking for other jobs. I've always been curious about that. Like when a strike is happening, how many people don't come back after the strike is over, you know, after an Mm. agreement is reached, like they just, they find another industry, they find another place that, you know, like an industry that feels just more, more stable, basically, where they're not going to have to go and do this again as soon as the contract is up. Yeah. I think generally speaking, we haven't seen strikes that last so long that they lead to that sort of displacement. But I think certainly coming out of the pandemic, this question of, you know, people getting a chance to sort of take a break from their employment and reevaluate is is real. But I'm thinking here about teachers and nurses during the pandemic and how a lot of them did not come back. Nurses, if they reached retirement age, would sort of say, well, that's enough for me. Same with teachers um, or the teachers who were working from home when schools were shut down, decided, you know, this isn't an industry that I can stay in any longer. And they are finding new forms of employment. I think we're still trying to to, you know, get some distance from the pandemic to understand the job patterns of that period. But, you know, in these sort of like care related job categories, especially, you know, given that a lot of them are female dominated, we saw a lot of displacement and we saw a lot of transitioning. Uh, These strikes, I'm not as sure if they'll lead to permanent change. You mentioned um, looking to the steel industry. I guess I'm just curious about like, if we could just talk a little, a little bit more about like historic parallels and if there are have been any like success stories or failures that we should be thinking about. 
as we look at these, you know, new conflicts. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of a lot of people in the past decade or two have talked about similarities between right now and the 1930s. Hmm. Um, I think both because of the dramatic uh, wealth inequality that we see that is continuing to rise in this country. You know, we could obviously draw comparisons between the sort of robber baron economy and this tech economy that has created this, this massive divide in the country. That's interesting. I've read comparisons to the 1970s just in terms of like the sheer like number of um, people who are either going to be on strike or who might be on strike, but going all the way back to the 30s is is more (laughs) unexpected. (laughs) The 60s and 70s definitely saw a huge wave of strike activity and organizing. And I think that was in response to the emergence of globalization and some of the neoliberal trends that have continued. But the 30s, I think, is is like that is like the, the sort of nostalgic touch point for labor activity generally in this country and for um, the shape of employment. And what I mean by that is labor experts and employment experts now talk about the fissured workplace and that what that means is, you know, so many people are in gig jobs or working multiple jobs are getting benefits from here and income from there. And it's a little bit of this sort of hodgepodge as opposed to in maybe the stable middle part of the century, the 20th century, where people had, you know, one solid employer from which they could sort of, you know, derive a family supporting income. And so in terms of union activism, union formation and the response to um, hoarded wealth, it would probably be going back to the 30s. I mean, to what extent do you see the current strikes as like basically last ditch efforts to do what the government isn't doing, whether it's regulating technology in a time when, you know, everyone's kind of confused about what AI is actually going to be able to do and how many jobs it's going to be replaced and how it can be used. And then also just general economic inequalities that we we, we see all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, I would I would probably focus more on the latter. I I was thinking about how. um, 10, 15 years ago, I was uh, working as a as a lawyer for low wage workers, and at that time, the the sort of I, I think for progressive people who cared about workers' rights, um, there was a lot of skepticism around unions because they were seen as bureaucratized, and you know all of the sort of historical flaws of of these large organizations. And now we see um, young people who consider themselves progressives who are looking for a vehicle for social change flocking to traditional mm. unions which is not something I would have anticipated. And I think it is for the reasons you say people are in search of a structure that will correct for the economic maldistribution that they see in society, and they don't believe that the government is going to deliver on that. You know, I think during the pandemic, we obviously did see the construction of certain welfare state mechanisms that did help people a lot. And Biden should, I think, probably get credit for those. But in the long term, I think people are looking at the statistics they are asking, when was it that workers got a sort of, you know, fair share of the pie and it's when unions were stronger. And so you're seeing this sort of desire to engage with these, you know, incredibly flawed organizations, (laughs) Um, but people sort of understanding that this is sort of the maybe the only way to assert some form of power in the workplace and to try to claw back some of the gains. Totally. And regardless of sort of the of the political party that's in power, too. Yeah, I think that's right. This is really a sort of nonpartisan, bipartisan, uh, what have you issue, because, um, you know, even though Biden sort of professed to be the most pro-labor president since X and, you know, I think actually Union Joe, (laughs) Union Joe, a very good labor record, um, you know, Unions and workers will say, obviously, this isn't enough. It's not coming fast enough. There isn't even enough funding in something like the National Labor Relations Board to address these concerns. Nevertheless, these are the mechanisms that people are choosing to go through. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll have more with Tammy Kim in just a moment. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Political Scene. If you've been loving the show, please leave a rating and leave a review on the podcast app of your choice. And while you're there, be sure you're subscribed to the feed so that you never miss an episode. Thinking more about the Hollywood strike, you know, there was this anonymous quote from a studio executive recently that that went viral because of how, basically how bad it was. It was that, you know, basically the studios are holding out until writers lose their homes um, because at that point they'll be forced to give in. Is this normal? I mean, like what lengths do the, do the unions and, and the companies seem prepared to go to? I mean, is I guess I'm wondering whether, you know, quotes like that, if that's just sort of kind of a classic corporation move when it comes to striking workers or whether we're seeing um, basically this is just what happens when you have a like a massive tech company that is also a Hollywood studio that is also mm-hmm. like a like a household name, just the lengths that they'll go to basically. Yeah. I don't know if it's normal, but certainly you do you do hear that sort of um kind of overhyped language a lot from corporations. But I think like to your point, thinking specifically about Hollywood, I mean, Hollywood does have a history of quite long strikes. And I think part of that is the structural factor of, as we were saying before, like a little bit of this kind of lead time of the development of projects. And so both on the worker side and on the employer side, people can kind of hold out. I think on the worker side, they're also used to essentially gig-based employment for the most part. I mean, unless you have a very stable, let's say, you know, late night writer's job where you have a very regimented schedule. Now it's, it's so much more fissured and it, it always has been a gig economy, but now it's like extremely gigified. Yeah, I feel like these are people who know what to do in between projects or, and who are exactly. used to having that gap. And also who have, who have like a bunch of skills that can be applied in other places. Like I think that's right. Copywriting or just doing something else outside the industry, which is part of the reason why I feel like this is going to keep going on for a while. Right. So that's the kind of thing I think that this executive is counting on, that not all of the people in Hollywood are deriving their their money exclusively from the sorts of writing that are under the Writers Guild and SAC after contracts. Um, but, you know, at some time, this is going to break. And I think it's going to depend also a lot on the support and activity of other unions in Hollywood. Um, it is illegal for the other unions to go on strike just out of pure solidarity. But at an individual level, a lot of you know, people who are setting up the sets or teamsters who are delivering supplies are deciding not to cross those picket lines. And so that could eventually really hurt the executives and and make them come to the table again. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it could go quite long. It has gone quite long in the past. It seems like Hollywood writers are kind of unique in their ability to be able to supplement their income in these various ways. Like hotel workers in Southern California, are they currently striking or they're, they're about to strike? It seems like when it comes to an industry like hospitality, it seems like there's just less built-in flexibility for these workers. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting in in the Hollywood side because this question of of what it means to do work and do work consistently, right, has always been this sort of like uh, question mark. Um, But uh, yeah, so right now um, there's a possibility of up to 15,000 or so hotel workers in Southern California to go on strike. They're doing it in this kind of rolling fashion where different hotels join every uh, week or every couple of weeks. Um, I mean, it's interesting geographically just that so much of that is happening right now in Southern California. And obviously the hotel industry is very tied up with the Hollywood industry. So we'll, we'll see about that. It can't be a coincidence, right? I mean, it seems like the the Hollywood strike in general has become this huge labor story. And I've been wondering whether that has um, kind of resulted in there being more strikes and walkouts or whether it's more that 
these things were already happening in Hollywood just always grabs more attention. And it's maybe taking attention away from these other strikes that could be happening or that are happening. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, most of these are, well, all of the ones that we've talked about so far are contract strikes. And so the contracts do end when they end. But yeah, the the coincidence of so many of them I don't think in the in the hotel case it's not it's intentional, but it's certainly beneficial. I was talking to a labor organizer the other day, and she was commenting on this really interesting thing where you're seeing very traditional unions like hotel workers and the Teamsters UPS drivers on the one hand, and then these sort of quote unquote fancy unions, yeah. the actors <laughs> and the writers, and it's sort of you know the most glamorous parts of the labor movement tied to the sort of most non-glamorous, but the ones that we, every person sort of thinks of when you have a vision of, you know, what is a union worker going on at once. And I think that's all to the benefit of this sort of growing tide of labor interest. Young people especially will sort of see that and, and be able to kind of then perceive that, you know, unions are for everyone, I think is like the message coming out of that. So the fact that, yeah, your favorite actor and actress is on strike is probably a very good thing for their union, but also every other union. Are there any, like, unexpected similarities between the fancy workforces and the more blue-collar ones? I mean, like, when you read about, you know, like a young writer on a TV show who is unable to get a promotion or to get, you know, like a full-time gig, like, that is an experience that I think people at offices all over can kind of identify with. And I'm wondering whether there is some overlap in terms of the things that they're asking for or whether it actually is just kind of conflating, like, two very different experiences. No, I I think you're right. I think there are things in common. And I think they're more about the structures of employment. So it's, you know, in Hollywood, everybody's talking about the mini room and, you know, this shrinking reliability, both like in, in scope and in duration and in size of the writing project. And that's also then in the UPS contract around um, how many hours am I going to get? Is this going to be a gig job, a part-time job, or is it going to be something I can rise into from being a part-time to a full-time worker? To me, those are fairly analogous. There's also um, these sorts of like subcontracting type issues. I mean, in the in the UPS or Amazon case, maybe that's a bit more clear of, are you going to bring in outside workers who are technically employed by some other entity to replace my work? In Hollywood, like everyone is sort of like their own gig worker, their own entity in a sense. But, you know, can some pieces of traditional writers work be farmed out to AI or to non-union contractors of some sort? Um, and so I think like people are thinking more in these terms of, um, you know, is this a job that I can have for a long time? Is this a job that will take up most of my hours or am I going to have to find bits here and there? Do you think that we might ever move away from I mean, the gig economy seems very modern, and it seems like with AI and everything, it's something that's only going to continue. But all of these people in industries like across the country, across the planet, basically, are just trying to get something more stable. I wonder if there's going to be a basically a larger push against like the freelance model. Yeah, I think there is a growing pushback against it. I mean, gig work and subcontracting are as old as traditional employment. They've always been sort of, you know, tricks uh, or ways to circumvent the traditional employment structure. But I think with Uber, the rise of sort of Uber and the mm. Uber economy, that's just brought up so much attention to this and to the ways that they can be violations of the employment laws. And so you see a proliferation, for instance, of misclassification lawsuits where groups of workers are saying, hey, I should actually be a traditional W-2 employee of this guy, not a 1099 worker. That's like very common. Um, in New York City recently, there was a victory by bike delivery workers on apps. 
um, to be paid a minimum wage, which is not something that's traditionally given to app-based workers. Um, that's now in litigation. But, you know, there. in other words, I think they're all over the country. You're seeing the contestation of the terms of employment in this field. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier that it seems like there's been a lot of public support in general for the various strikes. And I'm wondering whether this is, has this always kind of been the case or, you know, whether this is actually a, just like a larger shift that's happened where the public is pro-strike or pro-labor in a way that they weren't before. Mm -hmm. Pew has tracked public support for unions, and it does seem to be at a high point right now, especially among younger people. So I do think we're seeing something historic, and, and we might, again, tie that to, again, the wealth inequality or this feeling of just losing out, not having enough tools. I think it, there's probably also something about, you know, social media, of course, and like yeah. the visibility of strikes, the ability of, of workers to sort of put out their own messages. Um, in a way, you can sort of see it as like a, a working class or kind of proletariat journalism, because you have more of these workers being able to address the public directly about their demands, as opposed to, quote unquote, the big union boss who's overpaid and all those sorts of stereotypes about, you know, who leads the labor movement. And so I think that that helps. Although it must be easy. I was thinking about how, like with the Hollywood, you would imagine that a you know, a writer for a TV show can write a very compelling op-ed for the New York Times or even a very compelling tweet about what it's like to be out on the picket line. But, you know, that might not be the case for someone, you know, where English isn't their first language and, you know, who's working at a hotel. Like, it does seem like there might be a disparity there in terms of, like, who was able to get the public on their side through, you know, the beauty of their writing and and who um, and who can't. Yeah. I think that's true, but I think video in a way answers yeah. that for us. And to my mind, one of the most successful social media accounts is by the United Farm Workers. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever run into them on I Instagram or Twitter, but they'll What have is a, their content like? Well, they'll have sort of non, there's sort of even nonverbal videos of just farm workers picking vegetables or fruits in this incredibly speedy and skillful way. Or, you know, kind of doing little exposés on the conditions that they live and work in. And so I think there are, there are different modes of communication. I think also like with the Spanish-speaking hotel workers, their union is so used to translating literally across languages, but also, yeah. you know, conceptually their demands around social media. So I, I think there's there's this kind of like growing labor universe of, of sort of media and social media. That's also augmented by traditional journalism. There are more sort of traditional journalists on the labor beat, I think, over the past decade or so. And so... Um, that's, I think, also contributed to the public support for strikes, although maybe that's a self-serving analysis. <laughs> I'm curious about like what the unintended consequences of some of these strikes might be beyond just, um, you know, reaching a resolution. People talk about how like the la- in the last big writer's strike, there was essentially this like boom of reality TV that came afterward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after UPS went on strike, Amazon became a massive company. And so I'm wondering if these changes somehow like lessen the power of strikes, whether I guess when TV writers go on strike, they're worried about, you know, whatever genre they're working in, just not even being a genre that's of interest to people by the time that the strike is over, because Mm -hmm. everyone is interested in animation now, because all the animated shows continue to go out. I I believe the animated writers are not currently on strike. Yeah, yeah. In the case of animation, the animators are sort of split between the Animation Guild and the Writers Guild. So if they're on an Animation Guild contract, they can continue to do that work right now. But um, but yeah, to your larger question, I think you're totally right that employers in response to large work actions are going to sort of pivot and see, well, what can we do in the interstices of this labor confrontation? Um 
your, your reading of Amazon, I think is really interesting because it's true that I think in 97, the last time UPS held a strike, obviously Amazon was very nascent and nobody sort of knew what was on the radar. Um, whether or not that's, that's a response, I mean, certainly that is, there's like a historical continuity there. And I think both in the case of Amazon, which is essentially unorganized from a labor perspective and reality TV, same thing. The actors and most of the creatives on there are not organized. It's really also up to the unions and to the workers who are presently on strike in more traditional parts of those industries to identify and chase that. The Teamsters are having a little bit of a reckoning of we let Amazon go on for too long and sort of get too powerful without properly having an organizing strategy. And ironically, it's some of these upstart unions, which haven't made a whole lot of traction, but have certainly challenged the Teamsters, like Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island, of course, which got so much attention for winning the first you know union election there, if not a contract. And, you know, even like Starbucks in a way, like all of these smaller sorts of efforts have essentially said to the Teamsters and other large unions, well, what are you going to do about these parts of your industry that you have let go? You know, I saw Bethany Frankel from the Real Housewives franchise tweet, <laughs> a viral tweet about now all the reality TV people should unionize. So yes, there, there's the employer kind of pivoting, but then there needs to be the labor side pivoting. And, and that, yeah. that just depends on, yeah, how active the unions are going to be, or are they just going to let that go? You also mentioned Biden earlier um, and just kind of his track record when it comes to labor. And I'm wondering if you think that this, you know, all of this labor action might influence the next presidential election. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> and the re- the reason uh, um, I, I'm hesitant about it be- is because I think labor and the Democrats have kind of always gone together and there is always just an expectation on the Democratic side, just the way that they've always kind of banked that Black voters will always sort of vote with them, that labor will always go with them and there will... They will not really need to rise to labor's demands. You know, I think that's been a tradition in the Democratic Party. And so even with a candidate like Trump, who, you know, is so against outsourcing jobs and and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's interesting. I mean, there is this sort of split among like the white working class in particular. And obviously the Democrats have had to kind of reckon with this question. But I think for the most part, they are always getting the union's endorsements, right? Yeah. And there isn't really any daylight between the Democrats and and labor. So this is, I think, a frustration for people more on the kind of left side of labor of why is this always the pattern? And in fact, you should place more demands on um, candidates. Um, I think like you're pointing out, you know, Trump's kind of appeal to the white working class is interesting because there has been this sort of assumption on the Republican side that they would eventually develop more of this kind of working class strategy. But that doesn't really seem to be part of any of the campaigns of the Republican frontrunners so far. I mean, I think in that case, it's all the more true that labor and most of labor's members will just go Democrat no matter what. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem kind of from this analytical perspective of like, what is the point of labor in politics and in society? But I I think for the most part, I mean, labor is pretty happy with Biden's performance so far. So I I assume that'll just continue to be the case that they will walk with him. So we're in the middle of hot labor summer. I guess I'm wondering what you think is um, going to happen as we, we move toward the fall. I mean, it's it's hard to predict how long the, the Hollywood strike will last, but I guess just based on precedents that have been set by strikes in the past, you know, that hotel workers have gone on and, and automobile workers. I mean, is there any way to predict what's going to happen or how long it's going to take at least? Or is it, um, or is, are we just dealing with so many new factors that it's really hard to to make a proper prediction? I think what I would say coming out of this season is that 
I might bracket Hollywood for a second, but on in the case of like UPS, the United Auto Workers, the hotel workers, I think we're we're mostly going to see big labor victories. And I think that's both because of the public support question and because most in most of these industries, everyone is making an exceptional profit right now. They just yeah. are. And so I think the labor side has quite a bit of leverage. Um, I think the Hollywood thing is is like trickier. Um both because of the AI thing, they're they're really trying to you know work with that, um, and and yeah, because of this kind of timing and holdout question of like how long can they, can they go on that? So so that to me is like a little bit more of a mystery. Um, but I think for the most part, this we can say that this is a pretty good season for labor, and that these contracts are going to lead to to big wage increases. The inflation, I think question is, is the thing that will continue to sort of hover over future labor organizing and activity. The longer that goes and things are expensive and life seems hard and wages seem reduced, you're going to see more people rising up against that. So if, I guess like if we continue to deal with inflation, and it, it seems like inflation is like kind of stabilizing um, for the most mm-hmm. part, but it'll surely rise again at some point. I mean, can we just sort of expect that when a big contract expires that there's going to be another I guess like every time a contract expires, is there this heated discussion that might result in a potential strike? Or is this really like a rare thing that we're seeing right now? And it's not just the wages. It's, you know, it's AI. It's everything else. Yeah. Well, I think there's been a a decision in a lot of important and large unions that they're going to force a contract confrontation, that they're going to use that contract leverage to either strike or to credibly threaten a strike. And then that's good for the labor movement. There's one theory on the sort of labor left that striking is good and striking is a sort of healthy exercise of workers' mm-hmm. power and that it shouldn't always take some massive confrontation to bring about a strike, but that in fact, by being in the habit of it, you sort of, you know, there's all these sort of salutary things that flow from that. So it really depends on the kind of ideological position of a union's leadership. The reason why strikes happen though, only at contract time is because effectively in the United States, it's illegal to strike at any other time. And so that's really your only kind of intervention point to demonstrate power. You know, strikes build on one another. There's a kind of like excitement and enthusiasm around that. You know, that's going to wane over time in Hollywood because it's an exhausting summer to be striking so long. Yeah. But, you know, with sort of new strikes starting, that enthusiasm, I think, supports other workers to take more radical action, which in turn, you know, elects more progressive leadership. So, so that is the sort of cycle, I think, that we're seeing that produces this season of strikes. Interesting. So if every summer from here on out is going to be hot, it might also be a hot labor summer every summer. (laughs) Hot labor year. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Tammy. Thanks so much, Tyler. This was fun. Tammy Kim is a contributing writer at The New Yorker, where she covers labor and the workplace. She's also a co-host of the podcast, Time to Say Goodbye. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with editing help from Catherine Winter. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.